Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Cheers Shots to the Cranium. I am your host, Stephen Goforth. Before we jump into this interview with Bullet Bob Armstrong, I'd like to remind all of you to go follow us on Instagram and on Twitter. That's Cheer, the number two Cranium, Cheer to Cranium on Instagram and on Twitter. Like us on Facebook. Subscribe to us on YouTube or YouTube channel, Cheer Shots to the Cranium. You can also find us on all major platforms for podcasting Apple, Google, Spotify. So go check us out, subscribe. Get alerts on, as to when we'll have new episodes dropping out there for you to listen to. My most recent episode, episode 30, was the Cranium Correspondence, where I talk about a lot of different topics in the world of wrestling going on right now. Since that time, so many other things that have happened. I'll come out with another Cranium Correspondence before our WrestleMania predictions coming up next week, believe it or not. WrestleMania is just around the corner, so look out for the prediction show that myself and Addison will be doing keeping track of what our records are. She's got a little edge on me right now on the predictions, so let's see if I can't dethrone her this coming week, or will she increase that lead on our prediction show? So don't miss it. we got a lot of matches to talk about and a lot of matches to predict for WrestleMania. It's shaping up to be an outstanding show. So again, go follow us. Give us your support. I greatly appreciate you listening to this interview. Go check out the website, cheershotstothecranium.com. Again, cheershotstothecranium.com. A lot of cool links on that website that you can go check out. One of those being prowrestlingtees.com forward slash cheershotstothecranium. Go get your very own merch. Support us. Wear it around town. Be the talk of town. Be the talk at wrestling shows when you go and wear that t-shirt. People will love it, I promise you. So go check it out. Cannot thank you enough for your support. And without further ado, let's head right into my interview with the WWE Hall of Famer, Mr. Bullet Bob Armstrong. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Chair Shots to the Cranium Interviews. I'm Stephen Goforth. My guest today is one of the greatest of all time in professional wrestling. He has brought so much excitement and innovation to the wrestling ring since 1960. He's won countless championships throughout his stellar career. He introduced all four of his sons to professional wrestling and became a WWE Hall of Famer in 2011. It's my honor to speak with the one and only Mr. Bullet Bob Armstrong. Mr. Armstrong, how are you today? Fine, thank you, and thank you for all those compliments. I didn't know who you were talking about there for a second. <laughs> oh, it's my pleasure. You deserve every one of them. So you recently had your very last match in professional wrestling. I'm sure you had a ton of emotions going through oh, you during that last match. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Let me, yeah, let me clear that up for you. It was my last match in Pensacola. I've got a few more. I've, I've promised promoters, and I'm not going to let them down. But I'm not. I'm, I'm reading them out one at a time. It was my last match in Pensacola. I'm sorry about people misunderstanding that, but. Brian did come down, Road Dog came down and introduced me for my last match, and I appreciate him doing that, but that was our hometown where we lived here in Pensacola at the fairgrounds. But I got a couple of three more shots, and I'm going to fulfill my obligations. Oh, uh, that's great. So at least we get to see you in the ring again. I hope so. That's great. That's great. So what's next for you after professional wrestling? Are you going to stay involved, or are you going to, to some degree, uh, or are you yeah. just going to step away completely? No, no, I could never do that. It's, uh, first match in uh, 1963 actually my first professional match in 1963 and it's just after 55 years and this October will be 56 it's uh you can't just you can't just shuck that uh it's 
so I will, they've offered me a job as commissioner here in Pensacola, and I, I'm really thinking seriously about that, and also commissioner for a couple other outfits, and I'm, I'm thinking about those too, so I'll, I will still be involved if I can. I don't ever want to be away from what I love. Well, as I mentioned in my opening statement, all four of your sons were very successful in professional wrestling. What a blessing that must have been for you to share your love of wrestling with all of your sons. Talk to us a little bit about that. Well, it was uh, it was getting to know your family, besides just being a father. I got to know my sons as partners, as friends, as brothers, and uh, it was just, uh, that's priceless. Absolutely priceless. I learned everything. I learned so much by, by knowing them closely like that. Sure. And then and being partners, you know, you always got somebody you know that's going to be there when you tag them. You know they're, they're there for you in more ways than one. So it was uh, it was something that uh, was absolutely priceless. It just can't really describe it. No words to describe how wonderful that was. Well, your son Brian, better known as Road Dog in DX, is about to join you in the WWE Hall of Fame. And you guys are just the fourth father-son group to be in the Hall of Fame, which is a, a tremendous accomplishment. How does it feel to see him experience such such a wonderful accomplishment, and, and are you going to be able to be there? Uh, I'm not sure yet if I'm going to be able to be there or not. I'm, I'm fighting bone cancer, and uh, I'm, doing, uh, I'm not going to take any chemotherapy or anything like that. I'm just going to let nature take its course, but so far I'm winning the battle. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's a funny thing. You say the father and son were the fourth. I don't know what number we were in the Marine Corps, but in 1957, I joined the Marines, and I made Outstanding Man out of Paris Island. Wow. And then 30 years exactly later, in 1987, my son Brian also made Outstanding Man, and I got to go see him graduate because of that. And wow. That was a wonderful thing, too. So we kind of joined it to him in a few father and son deals. Yeah, no doubt. And then, listen, that's a, I've heard Paris Island. That is a, uh, that's tough. That is a tremendous accomplishment. So tell me about the moment you found out you were going into the Hall of Fame, and, and how was that Hall of Fame experience for you? I thought they had the wrong number. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It shocked me so bad I had to say, well, now, who is this? Now, what are you talking It took me a minute to get uh, to get through all this process in my old brain, and uh, when I did, it was just pure elation. I was just so happy that they recognized you, you know, for all. I've been in so long. And then to get it that late, it meant twice as much to me. I wear this ring with honor, and I'm just proud to be a part of their Hall of Famers. So I'm sure you've talked about this experience many times already, but for fans who may not know how you come up with Bullet in your name and why you wore a mask for part of your career, tell them about that experience and how it came about. Well, uh, you know, in 1982, I think it was, the weights fell on my face. It, it changed my appearance completely from then on and uh, I never quite, kind of got used to the new face and I didn't know how people felt about it and uh, Gordon Soley who was you know known as the Dean of Professional Wrestling he he was said one time when I was ready he said he's faster than a speeding bullet and we had a big laugh about it and later on uh, people remembered that and so when I had a chance to put that mask on and a special deal we did here right here in Dothan Alabama and I got put that mask on, and I've never taken it off. I feel comfortable with it. And uh, the people that knew me before, they don't know the difference. So it's just been a real godsend for me, and I love wearing that mask. Now, I saw a, uh, an interview that you had with Jake the Snake Roberts uh, some time ago, and he kind of went into detail about what happened with the weights, and it hit your face. and It, it uh, dang near just it really just took your whole nose off, didn't it? Yeah, it tore up my 
ourselves in the corner of the gym uh, that afternoon after that happened. We worked out in the morning. I had Ronnie Garvin with me and uh, Pistol Pez Watley and my son Bradley. And it was so funny. It felt I had to, too much weight and a, and a bench that wasn't nailed to the floor. I was used to, I used to using the heavy weights, but always the bench was nailed to the floor. This one wasn't, and it was my fault completely because I did not check to see if it was nailed to the floor. And I had 185 pounds, and when I threw it back over my head, the whole bench just flipped out from under me, and it hit me right in the teeth and tore everything from there up. Wow. Every bone in my face. <laughs> what was funny, I got up, it didn't knock me out, it knocked me goofy, and I said, Brad, is uh, something wrong with my face here? It feels funny. He said, he almost fainted. He turned white, and he said, Dad, do not look in the mirror. Well, of course, I had to look in the mirror. <laughs> when I did, all I saw was two ugly black holes in the middle of my face. Oh, Wow. Yeah, that wasn't much fun, but, you know, everybody said, old Bob's finished, and, and I thought it was finished, and then I just got to shame myself for not giving it to 100%, Neil, so I, one morning I just, uh, I cried for two weeks, just feeling sorry for myself, looking out my big picture window down here in Gulf Breeze, and finally I called Scott, and I said, Scott, come out to the gym with me and hold this tracheotomy in my throat because I didn't know if I lifted weights and it'd fly out or not. He said, no, we can't do that now. I said, yes, you can. So he stood behind me and, and put his hands on both sides of the tracheotomy with each hand, and I started doing curls. And six months later, I was back in the ring, and I wouldn't take anything for that. Wow, what a tremendous comeback. That is an awesome story. Now, you had the chance to, tag, to be in a tag team with all your sons at some point in your career. I'm sure Every all... I'm sure all those matches were extremely special to you. Are there certain matches that stood out to you as more memorable? Well, I have some special, some special with every each and every one of them. We had special matches. Smoky Mountain, I got to team with two of my sons at the same time, Scott and Steve, and that was a special time for me. We all got the same colored outfits and everything. It was it, it really something that I remember for the rest of my life. And. Uh, and so I've tag team with Brad. I had tag team with him for 32 years. He started when he was 18, and every match I had with him was just fun to watch him because his, technically he was probably one of the best I've ever seen. And Road Dog, when he came, when he got out of the Marine Corps, we had a chance to wrestle partners several times, and he's just funny to be around. He's just a great guy, and uh, I'm real proud of him. A lot of your matches took place uh, in National Wrestling Alliance. Who were some of your best yes, opponents sir. during that time? Dick the Bruiser, I don't know if you remember him. Oh, absolutely. I'm going way back now, and I was a nervous wreck because he was about twice my size, and uh, it was something to wrestle a, a national star like that. And I remember that specifically, and Gene Kanisky was a big hockey player, world champion from Canada. He almost beat my brains out. He was uh, one of the toughest I've ever wrestled. And I wrestled a lot of world champions, uh, Terry Funk, Dory Funk. Jack Briscoe was a sensational wrestler. And Rick Flair had several matches with him, and uh, so I, I had to, I got to experience all those world champions, and they all had something special about them, something special, and they were all, and they all deserved the title, world champion. So well, well, I'm I sure you, I'm, I'm sure you pushed them to their absolute limit during those matches, but were there any that pushed you to your limit? All of them. <laughs> Every world champion I ever wrestled pushed me to my limit, but they got the best out of me. And it was all over. When I'd get over the match two or three days later and my body would stop taking, I'd, I'd say I wouldn't take anything for wrestling a world champion. Now, you spent a lot of your career as well, or some of your career, I should say, in Georgia Championship Wrestling. What was it like wrestling for them, and, and what matches there stood out of some of your favorites? Oh, yes. They had some, a 
I had some great matches for them. And uh, there was uh, every Saturday morning at Ted Turner's station. And uh, that was, uh, and we'd wrestle for two hours, sometimes three, because they'd tape one to put it in the can in case somebody got hurt or something. So it, it was a great adventure. I got to meet the big cat, Ernie Ladd. I became very close friends with him. And, and all the guys wanted to be on that channel because it was, uh, I think, 42 states it went to, almost the whole country. Yeah. And, you know, foreign countries, too. So Ted Turner had to, he had a station that went everywhere. So it was a, a play, and we got to see all the stars. So they would bring them in, and I'd get to meet them, and it was just, it was just something else. I just had a special dream. I've lived a dream, but I have, I really lived a dream, and I thank God for it every night. Like, like July 14th. 1984. That's known as Black Saturday in professional wrestling. That's when Vince McMahon purchased Georgia Championship Wrestling. Uh, were you still there? And if you were, what do you remember about that day? No, I wasn't there at the time. My son Brad was, and then later he talked uh, when they had their school in Atlanta. They had a wrestling school there, and Brad was uh, the first one they called to be a teacher there because he, he was just very good technically. But I wasn't there at the time. I was here on the Gulf Coast and just found a place that I love being close to the ocean so I, I missed all that I'm sure that had to be a shocker to a lot of the guys with Vince coming in it certainly was a shocker as a fan watching and, and seeing him pop up on that show uh, Vince that is uh, yeah. I, I can't imagine what everybody was thinking during that time no it was a shock to everybody but Vince uh, Vince threatened to roam what happened here here's exactly what happened Ted called me in his office one day and he said listen why aren't we wrestling in Lansing, Michigan, and Grand Rapids, Michigan, and Ohio. He pointed all the places that were, you know, would be great crowds and, and had a lot of population. And I tried to explain to him, since I was old NWA, that doesn't belong to us. That's claimed by other people, other organizations. He said, why? <laughs> He's a businessman. He un didn't understand right, why. Right, right. So we went up north, and uh, Brad went with me, and uh, I handled all the guys, and and then uh, Vince started running. I mean, it just became a big hullabaloo, and uh, and Vince won the war. <laughs> he had a great production, and when it was all over, he stood tall. I mean, if you go back and look at that Georgia Championship Wrestling roster, I mean, it was unbelievable, the talent uh, that, that came through there. And obviously, Vince noticed that, which is why he said, you look, i got to have this. But, uh, I mean, I, I encourage fans, when you're listening to this, go and, and look up, just Google uh, Georgia Championship Wrestling. You'll see it on uh, Wikipedia, I think. Roster on there. It's crazy how many good guys went through there. Oh, absolutely. The talent pool was never at a low point. It was always top drawer talent and great to work with. And then, you know, we were busy at that time, too. We did a, a TV two hours in Atlanta, and then we drove to Columbus, Georgia. Uh, that area down there was on fire. And we did another hour TV there, and then we drove to a town and wrestled that night. By Sunday, there was nothing much left of us. We had to rest all day. Yeah, no doubt. You mentioned Gordon Soley earlier. Do you have any good Gordon Soley stories you could tell us? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, Gordon Soley, I was in Knoxville. He called me to pick him up at the airport. And he had been drinking all night with Buddy Colt and had a party and everything. <laughs> and he was a little tipsy. And I said, Gordon, wait right here on these steps at the airport in Knoxville. I said, do not move. I'll be right back to get you. So I ran, jumped in my car. As I pulled back up, I saw a huge crowd right where he had been standing. And I jumped out and ran up and I asked the police, well, what happened? He said, well, uh, Gordon Soley's had an accident here. 
Oh, his nose was bleeding. His cheek was bleeding. He had fell. He fallen right off the step. Oh no way! And our TV started an hour and a half, but we had a hell of a makeup lady, and she <laughs> fixed him up where you could barely tell he had fallen on his face. So that's a memory I have that uh, that worked out okay, and he wasn't hurt really bad. It was just a, a bad fall that he was real lucky he came out of. Oh, oh, what an awesome story! And thank God for the makeup lady. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> So tell me about your time in Japan and Korea. You spent some time in the ring over there, right? Yes, I did. I went to, to Japan on my first tour with Crazy Luke Graham. He had been there before, and I, I didn't know. I, I knew he was a star in New York, and I thought he was from New York. Turned out he was from a little town, uh, Gray, Georgia. It was just a few miles from Macon, where I, I was a star at the time. I, they were pushing me as a southern, one southern bred boy from Georgia. And so when I met him and I said, how things in New York? He said, I don't live in New York. I'm a Georgia boy. And I was so proud of that because I was nervous about going to Japan anyway. It was my first time. And so he took me by the nose and just led me all around. And it was a wonderful tour. It turned out to be great. And so when Inuki started his own um, his own tour over there, uh, you know, it was run by Yakuza. That's, that's Japanese for gangster, and uh -huh. they ran that whole operation for a man called John Baba. He was about a seven-foot Japanese guy, if you can right. even imagine that. And so uh, I wrestled Nookie several times on my first tour. We were about the same size, and we had great matches. He was he was really a sensational wrestler. So when he pulled out on his own, nobody would go for him because they were afraid to. And so he called me and told me how it would be that we'd have protection. 24 hours a day, they'd have guys standing outside our room anywhere we wrestled. It was only, I'd only wrestle three times a, uh, a week, that's all. Mm -hmm. And I'd stay for six weeks. So I got an old buddy of mine that uh, wrestled part-time. He went with me and nobody else. I had three Mexican boys went and that was it. So nobody else would go. So, But the thing is, Inuki had married one of their most famous movie stars. And he got married in the Keo Plaza Hotel, which was the tallest hotel in the world at the time. So he had a lot of a lot of backing from Parliament in Japan, and so they didn't touch him. But we still were under guard for the whole trip, and they gave me a nice bonus when I left and told me to come back anytime. And, uh, and from then on, he went great guns he, for the next 30 years. He it was a battle between those two outfits who was the best. And once in a while, they'd get together and wrestle each other and sell out the Tokyo Dome. Yeah. So it worked out, and nobody got hurt, and I was glad of that. And then, but Korea was a different story. When we got to Korea, Luke and I, on my first tour, they came to our, first of all, we drank the water, which we shouldn't have, but we just passed each other going to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. And they had a, they had two Jeeps waiting on us. They took all my Pepsi Colas. I'm a Pepsi guy. They took all my cigarettes. They took everything Oh, away no way. That's awful. Every, everything, yes, yes. And then I had to buy their stuff, you know. Yeah. And they had two Jeeps there. And on the back of those Jeeps was a 10-foot-tall plywood of, of Luke and I. You know, he had his own Jeep. I had my Jeep. And they looked exactly like us. Some some artist had painted on the plywood and, and cut out our body body style and made it 10 feet tall. So we rode down the city of, of Seoul, Korea, with people on the side. You know, they plugged it because they only had wrestling in Korea a couple of times a year. Mm -hmm. So it was a big thing for them. And uh, they put so many flowers around our neck. We were both so thirsty. We had to drink the water, and boy, was that a mistake. And then we went to Pusan. They, they, uh, we had to ride a train with a wooden seat that beat us to death. 
to Busan City and that 100,000 people the first show and I think about 80,000 people the second show and then flew us back to Seoul for the last two shows on an airplane with pigs and chickens and I'm not kidding you pigs and chickens on the plane an oh old my World gosh. War II plane that didn't make it over the mountain he had to turn left and uh, chickens and pigs went every which way and we were just holding on to each other praying yeah no so doubt we got back Yes, we got back to Seoul, and we thank God for that. And then they tried to pay us in Korean money. But the kicker was that uh, when we left Japan to go to Korea, they sent a a, um, a little guy that, that knew a lot about everything. I never did know who exactly he was or what he was, but his job was to take care of us because the office in Japan in, uh, in Tokyo had sent us to Korea. So when they tried to pay us in Korean money, they brought two two shoeboxes full of money running out the sides on both sides and I'm not kidding you it was full money was falling out and me and Luke were just said well great you know what you know that's great and the little guy from Japan said Chotomate with me just a minute mm -hmm. and he called us into the room and he said if you take that money you might as well throw it out of the airplane when it leaves Korea it's worth about a nickel on every dollar oh wow so then so then we had to tell those guys, thanks for the money, but we need American money. Well, there's a little problem there. They didn't want to do that. And I said, well, what do you think, Luke? He said, we're not going out there. The kicker of that was the president, our puppet president, his mother was an invalid, and she loved wrestling. And mm -hmm. she got to watch it twice a year, and she wasn't going to miss wrestling. Mm -hmm. So he had it televised. Now they had put their foot in it. They were televising it. And we weren't going to be there. Oh, no. Say, in about an hour and a half, they slipped the money under the door. We stuffed it in our boots and everywhere else so we could keep money because that, the little Japanese guy from Tokyo said, they'll come back and steal your money when you go wrestle. And so he was right because our room was ransacked, but we had the money with us. Oh, wow. And as we started to leave the next morning after the second night, this big black 49 Cadillac limousine pulled up. Two, two guys about as wide as they were tall jumped out, ran to the back and opened the door and this old gentleman got out. I mean, I mean an old guy. They helped him out and he walked up to us and Luke said, just back up against the wall, Bob. And we were ready, you know, for whatever. But he took out his hand and thanked us in Korean very much. And the, the guy that was driving the car said, he's thanking you. And I said, thank God, thank him too. So <laughs> we got out of that mess and I said, I'll never go back and I never did. Yeah, listen. When as soon as they took your Pepsi, that was just the, that was taking yeah, it down the road. It didn't need to go down. And my cigarettes too. My cigarettes too. <laughs> yeah, if it took my Pepsi, I'm like, I'm out. That's it, buddy. <laughs> wow, what a great story. All right, so you spent a few years in TNA Impact back in the early to mid 2000s. Uh, how did that come about? And tell me about that your experience there. You're talking about TNA? Yes, TNA Impact, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, we had their first show with them. Uh, uh, Brian and I went up there, and uh, Scott was referee. And they had their first show in Huntsville, and it was a great crowd. And I got to meet Toby Keith, and uh, he actually wrestled. He wrestled Jeff Jarrett, and he wasn't half bad. He's a big guy. And it turned out great, and I was uh, the commissioner for him, and uh, I had a good run with them, a great run. And uh, I, it just turned out that it was got to be a little too, too – too much for me, you know, flying down to Tampa every every week, and I just rather I had rather wrestle around close to home, and so. But Ryan kept on with them, and it, it, we finally fizzled out, you know. And something else always comes up. 
but it was fun while it was there. While Jeff was uh, Jared was running it, it was great and had good talent and met a lot of new guys that I hadn't met before. So I really enjoyed that. I, mean, I got to be good friends with uh, I can't tell it's like Kurt Kurt Angle. Yeah, I got to meet him. He was quite the character, and uh, so I I got to meet a lot of new guys that I hadn't met before. That was enjoyable. During your time there, you were involved in a storyline um, with Four Live Crew. Uh, that group consisted of your son Brian and R Truth, Conan, and Billy Gunn. Yeah. How involved were you in the creation of that storyline? Uh, a lot. They, you know, I, I gave them all the input I wanted, and then they would, everybody would throw ideas, and then they'd come up with what they wanted to do. And uh, you know, if it was not completely crazy, I'd go along with it, and I, I enjoyed that time. Oh, what a group of uh, unbelievable superstars that was. I and mean, a lot of people, some people may have forgotten about that. That's why I wanted to bring that up. And, of course, in learning your involvement in it. But you got your son, Brian, and, and R-Truth, and Billy Gunn, and Conan. What a great group of wrestlers that was. Oh, a lot of talent. A lot of talent. No they doubt. Were, they were sitting there fun to be around, and they were good. You know, whatever you wanted, they would do it. And I got to wrestle partners with Brian. Uh, on a couple of angles there against uh, Conan and his boys, and uh, it, it was just a lot of fun, and uh, it was a lot of action there, and I and I did enjoy going out to the park while we were doing televising there. I met Clark Gable. Oh, nice. His, his exact double, you know, they have doubles that drive along yeah. in a Cadillac convertible. <laughs> yeah. I met Marilyn Monroe. She was gorgeous. So I enjoyed <laughs> going out to the park, doing my off time, and meeting all the characters, and I got to see a lot of stuff. They just they slide me right in, let me watch. They were in the entertainment Mr. Armstrong, this is the cranium shot portion of my interview. I'm going to say a name to you. It's a name from your past, and you can give me a one-word answer. You can be several words, whatever comes to your mind when you hear this name, okay? Okay. All right, Roddy Piper. Roddy Piper was the best. Dory Funk Jr. The best. Jackie Fargo. Tough as nails. Harley Race. Jack Briscoe. Amateur couldn't be beat. All right, finally, the assassin Jody Hamilton. I was married to that guy. He was, uh, he was 300 pounds and moved like he weighed 150. He'd be waiting on me a lot of times. We'd do a spot, he'd be waiting on me. He was so fast and so good and so agile. I love that guy. And as we talk right now, I'm looking at his picture with his brother. He was 18 years old and they were headlining Madison Square Garden. He wrote me up. I had a chance to interview Mr. Hamilton. It was an absolute pleasure. I've met him several times, and uh, what a great guy. Absolutely. Mr. Armstrong, I cannot thank you enough for taking time to come on our show. Thank you so very much. Congratulations on an unbelievable career, and uh, I wish you the best of luck when you when you well, retire you know, and, and your new endeavors. You have brought back a lot of memories, and there's a lot more out there, but I'm glad we covered a few of the main events in my memory bank. Yes, sir. Thank you so very much. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Bullet Bob Armstrong. What an absolute pleasure. What a fantastic human being he is. And uh, just a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for myself. And uh, very, very proud and honored that he was uh, willing to come on Cherry Shots to the Cranium. I encourage all of you, again, follow us on Instagram, follow us on Twitter, Cheer to Cranium, Cheer to the number two Cranium on Instagram and on Twitter. And be sure to subscribe to us on Apple, Google, Spotify, YouTube, 
uh, to check out all of our other interviews and also future episodes and interviews that will come down the pipeline. Don't forget, listen up for our uh, prediction show next week for WrestleMania. Cannot wait. Let's see how me and Addy go. Addison does on our prediction shows. Cannot wait. Thank you again, and thank you for taking another cheer shot to the cranium.